Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show where we talk about all the stuff we've watched since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's just get started. Yes, we've all got places to be. That's true. That's true. All right. So I saw, I saw more stuff than you in the last few weeks, which is yeah, we very done, rare. We haven't done one of these in like three weeks, um, which usually means there's a ton to do. But I have like August and September... I have not watched much in the way of movies at all. I'm not sure what I was doing exactly. I mean, I was out of town a little bit. Um, yeah. But uh, now th- I will say there's a bunch of TV that I watched that I'm not going to talk about on here. Okay. Because I want to encourage you, well, you, Tyler, and you, the listener, to go check out the uh, two-part episode of the Televerse I did this week. Oh, nice. Which was uh, one part was a regular Televerse episode, you know, the week in TV or whatever. And then we did a fall TV preview where we talked about, um, some of the, uh, new shows premiering. Um, Okay. So I talked about Quantico and the grinder, which is great by the way. Oh, okay. I talked about scream Queens. I talked about the Muppets. Hold on, I need to. Okay, because I watched, and those are the five that I watched. Okay, Scream Queens is well. Again, you can hear me talk about it on the Televerse, but mm-hmm. it, it's it's more Ryan Murphy. So I, I feel like I'm kind of over his thing. Did not know it was Ryan Murphy. Yeah, never it's mind. More of the same. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was that. Okay. Okay. All right. So but what did you watch? What's the first thing on your list? First thing on my so uh, I'm gonna. Oh, here's what I'll do. Okay. There's one that we mentioned weeks ago oh that was embargoed uh, yes and so uh, i'll say it now which is uh edward zwick's pawn sacrifice which pawn i sacrifice <laughs> you know you're sillier than you used to be and i say that in the best possible <laughs> in, in, in way in general or tonight in general that's probably true good for you that's you know, exciting it, it might be the beard it could be. Yes. I think you are. Yeah. You're kind of a free spirit right now. Like <laughs> that wonderful. Is. Wasn't there a kids in the hall sketch with, uh, with Kevin McDonald. He like comes back from like a vacation and he, but he keeps his beard. Right. And it just, yeah. but it affects his behavior. I don't know. I don't remember the specifics, but, uh, yeah, I don't know the specifics either. Cause it's also the one where he can't stop, uh, his nose hair from growing. <laughs> That one I didn't see, and I don't know if I'd want to see it. Um, so, Pawn Sacrifice. As you know, I'm not a huge, huge Edward Zwick fan. Um, and the film is a very standard, run-of-the-mill biopic. I, you know what? I'll say this. Like, Did you see... You didn't get to see Love and Mercy, did you? No, I did not. Okay. I love the structure of it it's one of my favorite movies of the year and partially because just like, it just, it's so nice to have an unconventional biopic. Um, and then you go and see Pawn sacrifice and you are reminded, ah, yes. And by the way, that's not the only uninspired biopic I'm going to be talking about tonight. But, um, but yeah, Edwards wick tends to do things in a very straightforward manner. I always thought he was more of a producer than a director. Um, and so he's telling the story of Bobby Fisher and he does do something that I do like, which is rather than try and tell his whole story, he focuses in on one part of his life. Like they did with Lincoln, like they did with Capote. I think that's always the best call. And it's, it's uh, this legendary series of, of uh, chess matches between Fisher and the Russian champion Boris Spassky. And it was viewed very much as this, you know, cold war uh, in microcosm kind of thing. So that's really, that's great. 
Um, that's a good call. Um, the acting is good all around. Toby Maguire's Bobby Fischer. Liev Schreiber uh, plays Boris Spassky. And then Peter Sarsgaard is in the film as well as uh, sort of, I don't know, there's a specific name for it, but I can't think of it. But he's basically like um, uh, Bobby Fischer's second or something like that. Um, like, a, like in a duel? Uh, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Uh, but I don't think that's what they're called. But I don't think they're called assist, executive assistants or anything like that. Um, but yeah, and uh, the, so the a acting, tag team, like, yeah, yeah, like the Bushwhackers. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have not thought of the word bushwhacker <laughs> or the tag team wrestling champions. I think the Bushwhackers. Uh-huh. In let's see, what am I? Twenty thirty-three. I'm gonna say easily twenty-three years. <laughs> I mean, wow! But it all comes r- flooding into my mind—the yeah. stupid fucking way they walked with their weird, like, <laughs> yeah. just oh my gosh, David, you've oh you've broken my mind. How did you do? Oh, okay. <laughs> I gotta get back in the uh, back okay. head in the game here. Yeah, all right, back in the chess match. Uh. Yeah, but it's just, it's done in a really straightforward, obvious way. Um, you don't know anything more about Bobby Fischer than you, at the end, than you do at the beginning. Like, what I knew about Bobby Fischer was he was a genius at chess and he was crazy. Uh huh. And you, that's exactly what I, and basically every scene featuring Bobby Fischer and a lot of the scenes that are, in which people are talking about him, they usually come to one of those conclusions at the end of the scene. <laughs> right. And so it's very, it's, it's very frustrating. And also it's just like, there's so many obvious choices. And I got to say like the way he uses music, like period music, um, to set the tone, uh, both, uh, both sort of set the time period, but also set the, the tone of what we're supposed to be feeling, uh, is maybe the most obvious I've heard in many, many years. Um, like he uses like as, as uh, there's a scene where Bobby's going particularly crazy and it's like a montage. So obviously we're going to hear white rabbit, obviously. Wow. Yeah. And Hey, what lyrics are we going to like what the, at one point, like the sound in the film kind of drops down so that we can hear certain lyrics. What lyrics are we hearing? One night on the chessboard chessboard. Are you shitting me? Wow. Yeah. That's pretty obvious, right? Yeah. Like that's frustratingly. So, um, yeah <laughs> it's like as i was watching i was like wow really like you're a professional filmmaker um so uh by and large it's just a, a forgettable film and i thought that was a bummer because i thought bobby fisher does and also when you have a character who's just perpetually thinking in terms of a game and that's the only way that he can really make sense of life think of how much how much you could do visually, how much you could do with editing. Like I try to, th- I'm trying to think in terms of, you know, a movie that a lot of people don't like, but I think is really great is David Cronenberg's spider who has, who does such a really interesting job of showing a guy who cannot separate fact from fiction. And imagine if you had like a really good filmmaker saying like, I want to not merely get to know Bobby Fisher. I want to get inside his mind. Like how exciting and vibrant and scary that would be, but that is not who Edward Zwick is. And so it's kind of a bummer. Okay. okay. We can move on. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're, um, you're up again. Okay. Here we go. Uh, I also, I did a rewatch of, uh, so we recently did our, our, uh, top 50 
uh, musical, uh, sorry, movie scores. Right. And uh, Vertigo was on there, and all the talk of Vertigo made me want to watch Vertigo. So I watched Vertigo. And uh, when's the last time you saw that movie? It's been a while. Yeah, I don't know. A long time. Yeah, it's, uh, it hasn't lost a step. I'll say that. Uh, it's still amazing. And I'm just... Immediately, I went and purchased a, a five-movie Alfred Hitchcock Blu-ray set because my copy of Vertigo was not very good. Um, it was like a shitty DVD. And I was like, I want to see this film as vibrant as I can. I love its use of color. Uh, obviously, the Bernard Herrmann score is, is marvelous. But there's also just like, it's so creepy at times, but it's also surprisingly straightforward as far as the storytelling. It's just like... Do you ever do you ever feel like that there are certain filmmakers that we all just we just take for granted that they're like some of the most brilliant artists we've ever seen? And Alfred Hitchcock for me is one of those like we always say like yeah Hitchcock you know he's really great Hitchcock yeah is like no I feel like astounding uh, I feel like and I'll, you know I'm gonna have a moment like that later today too to a certain extent but I feel like I have gotten to the point where I. I try not to take any filmmakers or films yeah. for granted as being great because I think that happens. Um, cause you know, it's funny that you watched Vertigo because I've been meaning to rewatch psycho, which I also watched by the way. We'll get to that later. Um, well, why don't we just wait till we get to it? Then? Okay, sure. Okay. Uh, I guess I don't, I just mean that, um, I re I want to rewatch psycho because I saw it when I was young and I saw it with the mindset that this is a great movie and also I saw it knowing, knowing that Janet Lee dies halfway through yeah. and not, not taking into consideration the fact that the ideal audience or the audience at the time didn't know that, yeah. like just treating that as part of the fabric and not thinking about what that means. Yeah. Like, okay, well here's the part where she, you know, if you watch the whole movie knowing she's not that she, that then you're, you're kind of doing it wrong. Yeah. And, um, so I, I've been meaning to rewatch. I guess what I'm trying, what I'm trying to get at is that I try to. Uh, who said uh, that there are no um, there are no new movies or old movies, just movies you've seen or movies you haven't seen? I can't remember who oh, said. Gosh, that. I don't know. Um, and obviously, that's literally not true. There are old movies that I've seen, but um, <laughs> I, but the 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 spirit of that is something that I try to carry with me. I try to watch, uh, you know, if I'm watching a uh, a film that I know is a classic um, that I haven't seen before, I try to watch it with the same mindset as you know I'm going to see Everest or whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I I definitely had some thoughts about Psycho, which I will uh, talk about later. But yeah, just like there's not Vertigo is one of those things where it's like you can't say I feel like you can't say anything that hasn't been said a million times. Like all you can really say is like, yeah, it, it's a blindingly amazing work of art. <laughs> like it makes you feel like you've wasted your life <laughs> because you could never achieve anything even close to this great. Well. That's depressing. Thanks, Alfred Hitchcock. That's depressing. What an asshole. Um, speaking of depressing, uh, the movie that I saw, which we talked about briefly with West, actually, uh, on the last episode, um, was Alex Gibney's Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine. Yes. So I don't have that much to say about it. It's, um, I, I, I know, and, and you're not a big Alex Gibney fan, right? 
And, and I, what I, I think seen, there are he's, effective, he's an effective filmmaker, but I feel like he also just can't help but allow, like, whereas other people at least make an attempt at, at objectivity while recognizing but, you can't totally achieve it. I think he just runs straight through into but subjectivity. That's what he's, that's what he's making. I, I don't yeah. think he's uh, putting on airs. I don't think he's pretending to be objective. And he's no, not definitely not pretending to be objective with Steve Jobs and the yeah, machine. Yeah. It's yeah. a hatchet job. <laughs> he, is, he is out for blood from a dead guy, no less. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking movie. It's mean, it's mean-spirited, but in a way that um, kind of justifies itself. You know, huh. there, there's a part which, uh, I guess a lot of people knew this. I didn't know this, that um, Steve Jobs and some other people in Silicon Valley, some, like heads of major companies like Google and stuff, no. had a secret pact not to recruit from one another's companies, mm-hmm. which sucks if you work for, it's like, if you work for Google, it's like there's three huge companies out there yeah. that you won't work for. Even if there's a position that opens up that you're perfectly qualified for and is better, you're not going to work for them because you already worked for one of them. Hmm. That's, that's, uh, not the way that, uh, our system works. Yeah. Uh, and that's awful. So that's awful to begin with that. He was one of the, the these people, uh, Alex give me details, uh, with, with the emails to, to back it up, uh, a time when one recruiter, one, recruiter at one of those companies did reach out to one of Steve jobs employees and Steve jobs wrote an email to the head of that company. It was like, Hey, I'm very upset that we had an agreement with this, blah, blah, blah. And the guy said, and the guy wrote it back, said, uh, I'm very sorry. Don't worry. She's been fired. The recruiter and Steve jobs replied with just an emoticon smiley face. Uh, uh, what a what a gargantuan piece of garbage! Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and that's. I mean, I I understand that. You know, I I'm my notes for this episode are on an iPhone, uh, and we're recording on a MacBook. Like, yeah, there are four Apple products in this office. Right. Yeah. It's. I uh, I can you know just like I can enjoy Mel Gibson movies, I can enjoy the products. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, and we live in the United States, which was not yeah. necessarily settled in the best possible way. That that's a great point. That's something I think about a lot. That was, I played, did a, um, bar trivia with my wife last night. And, uh, one of the questions, you know, there's always one around where it's just, there's one question with 10 answers and it was named the 10 most populous, uh, native American tribes in the country now. Oh boy. And so the guy like read off the answers at the end, including the numbers. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. We really, we really did a number. Yeah. We really won. (laughs) Is that the point? Uh, I mean, I guess technically that is what we, what we did. High five. By we, I mean, I guess white, white people of European descent, I guess is what, I don't know. Uh, let's go ahead and just say the Europeans that way you and I are clean. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it was, it was definitely, uh, America's forefathers, uh, yeah. you know, who, who did all that anyway. And Steve, what I'm saying, oh, is Steve Alex Jobs Gibney made a movie about that. Yeah. Well, Steve Jobs is clearly no better than any of them. <laughs> uh, he may as well have given, um, smallpox, smallpox blankets to the people who assemble iPhones in China. So, hey, so, good uh, job on the Lisa here. Have a blanket. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa was the name of one of his computers. Yeah, right? That's true. Okay. Yeah. Um, I saw pirates of Silicon Valley. I get it. There you go. All right. What's next? Next for me is, uh, 
Oren Moverman's Time Out of Mind, which uh, is, it's interesting because in talking about um, Love and Mercy a moment ago, Oren, Oren Moverman, he did not direct it, but he was one of the co-writers on it. Um, he's just a filmmaker that I respect a lot, and he just has instincts that I like. And Time Out of Mind, which sort of became the shorthand was like, oh, that's that Richard Gere homeless movie, right? Like that's, right. you know, yeah. that we'd been hearing about for like a year. Um, in some ways it's amazing. In other ways, it's a little bit unconvincing. Um, okay. like Richard Gere does his absolute best, um, to disappear into his role. And he does not always achieve that. Um, and that's tough. It's, I don't know if that's necessarily his fault. I don't know if it's Oren Moverman's fault. I don't know if it's my fault for not being able to, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's, it's my fault for not being able to remove that from my mind as I was watching it. But, uh, what I like is that it's not a plot driven film because this man, this, this character, as is the case with a lot of, uh, a lot of homeless people, I would assume, there's not a lot of story to their lives. There's right. basic survival. It's okay. Where am I sleeping? What, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to go to the bathroom? Um, it's not about, Oh, I'm growing as a person. It's I need to survive first and maybe someday we'll, uh, achieve some growth, but, uh, I can't think about that right now. So it's, a, it's a very unconventional film and that like, there's hardly any structure to it. It's just kind of people enter this character's life and then go right back out. And, um, it's just, uh, it, it's, and again, I eventually like I, I, I got kind of lulled into the rhythms of the, of the film and got lulled into the rhythms of Richard Gere's performance. So eventually I, I got to, a point where I could believe him in this role. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a movie that I really, really like, and it might be a movie that I respect more than I like. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, because I feel like I almost feel like he should have cast an, a, a relative unknown in the part. I'm, I'm a fan of Richard Gere and I have been for probably 15 years, but I'm still kind of, surprised that I'm a fan of Richard Gere because I think like sometimes, sometimes you just like get to know someone or I will never not associate him with like Gary Marshall, you know, sure. Uh, pretty woman and like the runaway bride, yeah. uh, and like those shitty movies that he yeah. made in the nineties when he was his like heartthrob. I will never n- not associated him with that. So I like, even though I've seen more, like he's made really interesting choices. Like, I think I was in high school when I rented and watched Mike Figgis' uh, Internal Affairs. Yeah, which, which I still is haven't seen. Mind-blowing movie. And yeah. it's so great to see him be the villain. And not only just the villain, like, he's a he's a slimy piece of shit in that movie. Yeah. Uh, and he's great at it. And then there's things like Unfaithful and Arbitrage. And, yeah. Um, in Chicago. He's really the, good uh, in Chicago. I guess. I don't like that movie very much. But, um, Nor do I, but I think he's pretty good in it. But also, like, he made a movie with Akira Kurosawa, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. It's not a very good movie, okay. uh, as far as Kurosawa goes. Yeah. But it's cool that he went to Japan and made a, yeah. uh, a Japanese movie that's sort of about um, an American going and sort of dealing with, like, going to, like, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and dealing wow. with uh, that sort of guilt. <laughs> um, 
it's good for him for making it. It's it's not Kurosawa's best movie. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I I'm not, I can't remember where I started with this. Just that I like uh, Richard Gere. There are certain actors that I feel like this is something that I talk about with friend of the show Jason Eakin a lot. There are certain actors that seem to exist completely on their own track. Um, you know, George Clooney is firmly in Hollywood. Everybody knows him. People will think about him as one of the premier actors of his generation. Mm-hmm. Richard Gere is, is never a part of the conversation, and it's not because he's bad. It's just for whatever reason, like, he's never really been in, Os- in, in Oscar contention, even when there's talk of it, like, with Arbitrage in Chicago. Um, you know, he gets nominated for Golden Globes from time to time. Like, he's never in that, nor has he ever associated, nor has he been associated with, like, a big-time blockbuster in a long time. He just kind of makes the things he wants to make, and good for him, and he's fairly dependable. He de- He's, like, a good-looking guy. He has a movie star quality to him that I think mm-hmm. is maybe what keeps him from completely... Uh, disappearing into the role in time out of mind but it's i don't know he his is an interesting little cake uh, case study um because he's like a he's like a a weird ghost like he'll just appear act right. in a movie and you'll be like oh that movie's pretty good arbitrage is pretty good unfaithful is pretty good yeah and then he'll just and then he'll and then he'll leave your mind you know like and i feel yeah. i feel like i'm insulting him but I'm, i don't mean to put it that way so, and he's, he's just not somebody that I think film people talk about a lot. It's probably true. Yeah. You know? Um, so what's next? Next for me is, and uh, is a uh, psycho. Okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, I watched it with a friend who had not seen it before, did not know what happens to Janet Lee. How is that even possible? I like, because he's, I'll say this. He's like a younger Guy is like 25. He's not really big into movies. He wasn't really raised with movies, uh, not the way you and I were. Right. And certainly not even older movies. Like, undoubtedly, once the shower scene came along, mm-hmm. but he didn't know that that's the woman from the shower scene. Okay. And he didn't know, I don't think he even knew that the shower scene was in this film. Oh. You know? Yeah. Like, you know, the, you know the, the image, the scream, the music... But you just know, you know, if you were to say, hey, uh, do you know that that shot of uh, the guy with the glasses hanging off a clock? People might say yes, but they don't know what it's from. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just there are certain images that, uh, you know, when you see uh, the giant uh, ape scale, the uh, Empire State Buildings, that was that, uh, you know, it happened one night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might have overstated there, but yeah. Um, but yeah. And uh, but it was so much fun uh, watching him react and by the way this guy is uh this friend of mine who's quickly become like becoming like just a really close friend and we like to watch movies together and but he also hasn't watched a lot of the movies that we've watched so it's fun watching That's kind of fun, right? <laughs> it's the best it's like an experiment it's like i don't have to have a kid no offense amsey um but uh Wait, no offense to who amsey his name is amsey oh, okay. um but he uh i also watched alien with him and he hadn't seen it before and so that one like really freaked him out. And then this one, he says like afterwards, and he's a very soft spoken guy. He's like, that movie was creepy. <laughs> and I was like, that's right. It was. And, uh, but just, I think when, so to go back to my discussion of Hitchcock, when you see Hitchcock in interviews, he just seems like such a delightful f- mascot more than like a guy making some of the most brilliant cinematically yeah. creative decisions you've ever seen. Yeah. 
Like it's hard to imagine in the same way that there are certain actors that I can't imagine sitting down and working out their process, you know, working out how they'll approach a character because they just, I can't picture this guy who just seems so dry and just passive that he would instinctively know the best possible way to shoot certain things. And it, it's just astounding to me. Like I can picture Martin Scorsese making artistic decisions. I can picture him really agonizing over this is the way to shoot this scene or whatever. I can't picture Alfred Hitchcock doing that. And what's more is, and I think he, he, he certainly did agonize over these. He's a director, you know, uh, everyone has to work things out. But at the same time, you also, if you were to tell me, it's like, yes, he was born knowing immediately how to shoot psycho <laughs> and did not uh, question a single decision he made. I'd be like, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's done with such a sure hand and just so much of it. I don't know. And the, the way it's paced out, um, I forgot how, I think I forgot how long Marion crane is the lead. And this, and it's just about a, it's a story of her stealing money. Yeah, it's amazing. I can't wait for you to watch it again because you haven't seen it in a long it's time, been a right? Long, yeah, a long time. So, okay, we can move on. I'm sorry. All right, uh, another documentary for me, um, directed by Stanley Nelson. I think is his name. It's called The Black Panther. <clears throat> excuse me. It's called The Black Panthers: Vanguard of the Revolution. Okay, and it is simply tells the story of the Black Panther Party uh, through interviews and footage. Um, but it is not a sort of. Uh, you know, it's not a quaint, uh, historical document. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it, it very much gets you back and says something about the, the tenor of the current conversation in this country, that it's not that difficult to get back into, um, the, the mindset that birthed the black Panther party. Cause sure. the, the, um, the way that it started was in, in California at the time, uh, in the 1960s, it used to be completely legal to walk around with a loaded weapon as long as it wasn't concealed. Mm-hmm. That was completely legal, and the documentary makes the case that part of the reason it's not legal now in California is because the Black Panthers took advantage of that and would essentially walk around the streets of Oakland, never getting too close, like closer to be threatening, but following cops around with loaded rifles so that when they, when the cops had to like stop uh, other black people, it was a way of saying don't get out of line, treat these people with respect or else we're here, we're here to defend them. Uh, we're here on their behalf. So they would just stand there with loaded ri- rifles and watch cops, you know, like, uh, arrest or give tickets to black people in, on the streets in Oakland. That's how the black Panther party started. It's a bit incendiary. I think, <laughs> I think that was kind of part of the point. Yeah. Um, and the movie itself is, uh, does not shy away from being incendiary. Uh, and I don't mean that as a, as a bad thing at all. I found the movie, uh, fascinating and I really, really responded to its uh, unabashed uh, uh, approval of um, uh, of of the Black Panthers in most cases. I mean, then there are, you know, as it because it got to the point where there was, uh, I guess, uh, a schism, I guess, like the Great Schism, mm. uh, where there were essentially two Black Panther parties. There were two people leading different versions of black Panthers that kind of led to it falling apart. And the documentary definitely takes uh, one side over the other. What was the name of the uh, founder? Uh, Huey, Huey Newton, Huey Newton. Right. Okay. And there's a really interesting interview with him on firing line. Um, and it's a fascinating discussion. Yeah. Um, I've read about that and actually, yeah. Um, uh, Buckley is, yeah, you do see him uh, uh, briefly um, in the, in the movie. But, um, 
Yeah, and Huey Newton definitely gets the a lot of the blame for why it eventually fell apart because he mm-hmm. went to he went to prison, and the documentary sort of argues that uh, Huey Newton was maybe not the most mentally sound person to begin with, and when he came out of prison, he he had not been helped any by his time in prison, yeah. and kind of uh, destroyed the party um, because he was uh, not not stable. Uh, and also, like you know, there's a, I talk about the tenor of the national conversation. A lot of it uh, is about police brutality and police, uh, um, just the general relationship between uh, the authorities and Black Americans. And there, but there's also a lot of um, uh, feminism in the cultural conversation now. And I really appreciate Stanley Nelson pointing out how just how many women were a part of the Black Panther Party and how uh, much they were. Um, the the backbone in a lot of ways, and part of the reason he blames Huey Newton for um for causing the for essentially dismantling the party is that he ostracized the women by hmm. by you know he came out and he started being more uh, I guess essentially being misogynistic once he came out of prison. How long was um, he in prison? I, I just, uh, for most of the movie, he goes in pretty early. Okay. <laughs> Although the movie's not strictly chronological, which I also kind of um, uh, appreciated. But uh, there's just stuff that it's like with with the Steve Jobs Steve Jobs thing. That as as much as like the Stephen Nelson is angry when he's making the movie, he's got the facts to back him up. Mm-hmm. And when uh, you get to the death of uh, the 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 killing of Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Chicago chapter, I think mm-hmm. of the Black Panthers, like he makes a, a pretty much an airtight case that this was not a police raid gone wrong. This was a, essentially an organized assassination mm-hmm. of Fred Hampton. Um, that was in Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that was more. You know, it was the police who did it, but it was more like the FBI manipulating the police by having an FBI like person on the inside who was like the, you know, one of Fred Hampton's inner circle was working for the FBI and essentially having him bring in illegal weapons. And then the FBI saying to the cops, Hey, these black Panthers got a bunch of illegal weapons in this apartment. (laughs) Hey, you guys. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it would be hard not to, um, It'd be hard not to sympathize uh, yeah. with with the anger, um, and yeah, it's, it's a really good movie. It's rolling out across the country. I think it, yeah, I think it opened in New York last week, and it's in Los Angeles now, like as of tonight. Uh, Is it going to be tomorrow. on VOD? Uh, I, I, it seems like the kind that would. I feel. Yeah, like <laughs> like, um, you just get a sense of these things yeah. after a while. So we're checking out. What's next for you? Uh, next for me, I'm not going in any particular order. I'm going to say M Night Shyamalan's The Visit is next for me. Okay, so. Uh, I really liked it. That's very good things. I thought it was, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and one thing that I will say is that when I went into the film, I did not know that it was a found footage film. And once I realized that, I was like, ah, man, but he, but he does that. Okay. He does it. All right. Like, like Barry Levinson with the Bay, when you get seasoned filmmakers and regardless of what 
M. Night Shyamalan may be right now as a filmmaker. He is at the very least seasoned and he does have, he does still have a strong visual sense and all that. And so he, uh, he does a pretty good job with it. It winds up being a pretty effective on that level. I think it doesn't need to be uh, a found footage film, but it's still, it still works. That's, that's, it reminds me of something that I will will, uh, late when we get later in the list. You ever show up to a movie that you don't realize is in 3d until you get them those 3d glasses or they hand you 3d glasses. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's happened actually, before. It seems to have to be a lot actually okay. because I just don't pay attention to what's in 3d. And then I get, cause I'm not opposed to 3d, uh, on principle at all. Sure. You know, there are movies that I think use it very well, but I do have this thing where when I see 3d glasses, I'm like, ah, all right, you better earn it. Like, sure. You're sure. now starting it's with like the end of saving private Ryan earn this, <laughs> no, but it's like, you are now starting with a deficit, you're starting with points against, yeah. Because now you have to earn. In a top of, on top of being the good movie I was hoping you're being, you also now have to justify this thing. Um, and so uh, I, I feel I feel like I would feel the same way if I like was started watching a movie and it was like, wait, is this found footage? Like now I have to yeah. keep this in mind as well. Yeah, because that's the thing is you know. <laughs> Because when it's found footage, it's not like found footage is merely another genre. It's an entire different way of making a movie Mm -hmm. that basically invites you to act as though this is reality. Right. You know, and so now on top of every on top of basic character motivations and plot, you also have to believe that this world could could actually exist. And that's. I feel like any filmmaker doing that is making things even harder for themselves. Um, because if you actually don't convince me that the world exists, that's going to go a long way to making me not believe anything these characters say or do. Right. But, um, but the visit thankfully, uh, does not fall victim to that. It really is. I'm reluctant to use a phrase like return to form, but that it feels like it feels like this came out in 2004. Nice. Like this is after signs, like the sense of humor that he has. That's what I was going to ask you. Is it funny? I think it's very funny. Um, I had an in-depth conversation with friend of the show, Jimmy Pardo in which he disagreed. Um, but he also thought it was very effective as a horror movie. Like he thought it was that. Right. Um, and, but I thought it was uh, genuinely funny, but I think, and I think what I, what I unfortunately uh, failed to tell Jimmy is I feel like a lot of the laughs come from, uh, a sense of like incredulity, mm-hmm. just like the audience laughing because they're like, I can't believe what I'm seeing like that sort of thing. Like it's a different kind of laugh. Right. Um, and some of it's just straight up humor, but someone's just like, Holy shit. I can't, how are you doing this? This is ridiculous and kind of amazing. Um, and then some of them sometimes it's just a laugh of, uh, a release of tension. And so, um, it's a, it's a really effective film. I, I saw it, um, I went to a critic screening and I'm probably going to try and go again because oh, cool. I, cause I think Jen will like it. So, cause she likes M night Shyamalan and she likes horror movies. So I think she would enjoy it quite a bit. Um, do I have another one? Yeah. Next up is what next up is, uh, Bruce Bareford's breaker Morant. Okay. Uh, which is, uh, an unfortunate name for a movie. Um, it's, uh, I had no idea what it meant. Turns out it's the name of a person, oh, um, okay. or rather the nickname and last name of a person making it all the harder to understand. Yeah. But it is, uh, so, you know, in a way I almost, I, I almost wanted to email, um, 
uh, Will Anderson because he's our go-to anytime I have a, an Australia question. Okay. But like when you think of like American pioneers and American heroes and legends and stuff, we, we, I feel like we have a pretty good number to go from. We've got like Jesse James, Davy Crockett, like just any number of people in Australia. Uh, as I was watching special features on the criterion Blu-ray, they said like, in Australia, they, they kind of only have three. They've got Ned Kelly, okay, another one whose name I've forgotten, and this guy Breaker Morant. And now you're you're getting you're like conflating pioneers and criminals. <laughs> like yeah, we mentioned Jesse James and Davy Crockett in the same sentence. These those yeah. those are different people. I mean, different types of David. We're talking about Australia. The criminals were the pioneers. That's, that is true. Um, That's true. I meant for that to be more of a joke, but I guess that's kind of true. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, although Breaker Morant was a soldier, um, okay. and his uh, who got involved in um, in basically uh, an imperial war, um, where the British. So the Australia had just, I think, separated from the British, but they were still working with the British as the British were fighting these other, like I think the Dutch to hold on to a land that none of them actually owned. (laughs) So it was like so much, there's so much going on there. And so you have people who don't even really believe in what they're doing because they recognize, especially these Australian soldiers who realize it's like, I'm I'm not even British anymore. I'm Australian. Can I just go home <laughs> and um and just and so what happens is not unlike a movie like um uh oh, shoot Paths of Glory uh as this as this uh, war is going on uh there are certain there are certain political realities that need to be faced and the British decide that they need to hold some of their own men accountable as a way of appeasing the enemy. Uh, so that maybe the war will be over quicker. Okay. And so Breaker Morant and a few, and a couple other guys were put on trial for, uh, for killing their, their prisoners of war, even though that was that absolutely, uh, the order that was given to them. But so it's, so it's, uh, they're completely being railroaded. Um, in the cast is, uh, a guy whose name I love saying Edward Woodward, <laughs> uh, who is in a number of things, including uh, the Wicker Man, and then Brian Brown from FX and FX Two: The Deadly Art of Illusion. Um, That's true. <laughs> a film that I knew about probably around the time of the Bushwhackers. <laughs> so, but it's a really great film. I like Bruce Beresford as a director. He did Tender Mercies. He did Driving Miss Daisy. He has a tremendous patience. Um, and just a willingness to just kind of linger on certain shots. And the ending of Breaker Morant is really, really effective. And I, I found myself getting choked up. And it's uh, so the film's new on the, in the Criterion Collection, and it's marvelous. Okay. I've been very excited to talk to you about this movie. Okay. Because I filled in a big, a big hole in my uh, heart. Uh, yeah, it's just in, 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 you know, a big blind spot for me. Okay, this is exciting. Um, and not only am I glad I saw it, I think this might be one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, even though it has a sketchy history about whether or not we're supposed to think of it as a great movie. I'll quick dancing on the topic. I finally, finally saw Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. Aha! Uh-huh. And I know, like, 
I know that it's not really his movie that, uh, and that's know, very it's, frustrating. It's so frustrating, but even apart from like, he still, he still shot it. He still made it, it like those performances it, are still there. It's an incredible movie. Yeah. It's so fantastic. And it's, what's funny to me, like it's so different in many ways from Kane. I mean, there are mm-hmm. some things that you can see, um, you know, his, his use of space and his like, um, in some ways breaking out of the, like the proscenium arch type of way of uh, old mm-hmm. school movies, but then in some ways heightening that, like making it very, uh, uh, picture book and actually having like the vignetting around the, yeah. uh, around the frame, like doing th- that old school thing. And yeah, these, these crazy heightened performances. Yeah. Agnes uh, Moorhead is, uh, kind of the breakout there. Yeah. Um, but I mean the whole, the, the whole, like the very beginning that Orson Welles narrates where he, uh, he introduces the film by talking about changing fashions. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Like yeah. the hat sizes getting smaller and pants getting like either tighter or wider. like, and marking the passage of time mm-hmm. through that is a beautiful little short film on its own. Uh, it's so incredibly well done. It's funny. And it, in retrospect is like, it's the movie in miniature because, uh, I've always said, okay, there are, uh, you know, there are exceptions to every rule. And I've always said that I don't like when movies never say what city they're in. Like, like intentionally, like don't say the name of the city. Mm -hmm. This is, they do that here, but this is the exception to the rule to me because it's so part of the point that this is, a movie that is while it's about these characters and everything, it's also about the way that America changed during the late 1800s or at the turn of the century, like with the industrial revolution and that what, like it's so, it's so perfectly done the way that while these human dramas are playing out, we're seeing this, this essentially go from a town to a major city. These characters are in a way constant, but like the rooms around them or the city around them keeps getting bigger and more recognizably urban. Yeah. Uh, in a way that is in, I mean, in some ways very overt, you know, there's a scene at the end of the train station where they're like, the two characters, even though they're because you get that great deep focus thing that, uh, that Wells would do, um, even though they're in the front of the frame, they're like surrounded by this huge, almost like cathedral, like, uh, train station. Um, and they're talking about the past in a way. It's the one, the uncle, I think saying goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it's so perfectly done. And again, it's really, really funny. <laughs> I laughed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a bunch and uh yeah I, th- I just think it's uh it's one of the, maybe one of the best films i've ever seen in my life yeah it's i i haven't seen it in probably 12 years maybe yeah. i haven't seen it in a long time i don't i don't think it has a blu-ray release i think it only has a dvd release okay um which bums me out um it, it's it's so frustrating to watch that film because wells himself considered it his version considered his version to be better uh, w- so much better than Kane right which is astounding but, but it's great already like it's like you know cuz i've i'd seen the studio version of touch of evil which i've never seen the studio version of touch of evil still good okay. like that was the only version for a long time right. until uh, walter murch 
who, who's a can we keep kicking down the road? Yeah, we're going to profile um, Walter Murch someday. But uh, yeah, like the brilliance of Wells can't be like, you can cut 40 minutes out of a film, which is what happened with Magnificent Ambersons in one of the greatest cinematic tragedies in history. Maybe the most, um, cause they also just fucking destroyed it. Yeah. Did you know that they threw it in the bay? They threw it right in the bay. I don't know if that's actually true, but, uh, it, it's such a frustrating idea. Um, because it literally like, it's not a, it's not a metropolis situation where it's just, there's all these, there's a million cuts and maybe someday someone will find the full yeah. cut. You know, it's just literally a spiteful RKO angry at how he acted during citizen Kane being like, fuck this kid who thinks he's so much better than the rest of us. We're going to destroy this movie. But of course you can't destroy it because they, if you keep even a frame of it, it's going to be a gorgeous frame. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a marvelous film and one that, I, and it's also interesting because like it's one of the few films that he made. I mean, he made, you know, films based on Shakespeare, but those are meant to be the, you know, those are, that's drama already, but he adapted a book, mm-hmm. um, and one that really matches the amount of melancholy that he really, <laughs> really resonated with him. And, uh, and if you've read as many biographies about him, you know, uh, as I have, you know, that, uh, uh, a lot of the story of, Magn- of Magnificent Ambersons resonated with him as a function of his father. Okay. Um, there's a lot going on there, but it's, yeah, it's a marvelous film. I'm so happy you saw it. Yeah. Um, and then a listener, uh, posted, I think on our Facebook wall, um, or maybe tweeted at me, I don't know that, uh, IndieWire, uh, put out this thing that, Somewhere, I think, in South America or Europe, I don't remember, somebody happened upon these film canisters with a pristine, completely finished reel, uh, not reel, but like the the finished uh, reels of Chimes at Midnight. And uh, like, because it's pretty grainy, even the best restoration is pretty grainy, but like everyone's saying like, this is this is the best this film has ever been seen. And now maybe we can get a really nice 4k restoration. Then maybe finally that we can get a nice blu-ray release in uh, the U S but anyway, sorry, we can move on. That's exciting. Good for you. What's uh, what's next for you. Uh, next for me is Mississippi grind directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck half Nelson, half Nelson. It's kind of a funny story, which I didn't see. And then what's the one about the like sugar Dominican baseball player? Sugar. sugar. Yeah. Um, which I didn't see. Um, yeah, I really, I, I did not expect to like, or really respond much to Mississippi grind. It's like such a small film that like nobody really cares about, but the story sounds hokey to me or potentially. Well, and that's the thing is they, I, I feel like they have the ability to take a, a story you've seen a million times with characters you've seen a million times, but then imbue them with like cold, hard, gritty reality to such a degree that you actually are kind of okay with it. Like half Nelson, like half Nelson. Right. Um, and the big thing that I, and I said this in my review, if this were a higher profile film, I feel like there'd be a, they could get a good campaign going for best actor for Ben Mendelsohn. Because his performance is not unlike that of Paul Giamatti in Sideways or uh, Jack Lemmon in Save the Tiger, who actually won Best Actor that year. Just a very, just a beaten down guy 
who is just so desperate to get his life back in order, but knows that he can't do it. Like he is unable to, to do that. So, um, but it's just these two guys. One is, uh, Ryan Reynolds playing kind of a variation of his usual character, but, uh, adding a little bit more to it. And then Ben Mendelsohn, just these two guys, uh, taking a road trip down, uh, along the Mississippi river. Um, the mighty Mississippi, mm-hmm. as they never call it. Um, but, uh, just sort of gambling their way down to new Orleans where they're heading towards like a big game. And what I do, one thing that I do like is that like they, they have these very romantic ideas of what they're doing and almost perpetually the idea is not actually true. And so that's the thing that I really like. And it's just, it's, there's a grit to it, but there's like a, there's a hope to it that I think is completely earned because these characters are such, misfits and they are so so uh broken and kind of bastards at times and it's just a really it's a movie that i really liked and really responded to and as you know i'm a big fan of ben Mendelssohn and yeah. uh and i thought he did a a great job cool now does it if it takes place along the mississippi river does mm-hmm. any of it take place in st louis quite a bit hometown? really quite a bit is yes. it true yes do you, did they shoot there you see the arch or anything yes that's awesome that makes me want to see it not that I didn't before, but at least want to see it more. You're so solipsistic, David. I don't, I don't think so. You know what? Just got Admittedly, a hometown pride. I still haven't seen uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, but one of the reasons I want to see it is because I want to see my hometown portrayed as basically hell. Um, <laughs> or, yeah. By the way, you don't uh, need to shoot in black and white and have vampires running around for it to be seen that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got you to see entertainment as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, what's next for you? Uh... Oh yeah, I guess I do have one more. Um, well, by my count, you should have three more. I have three more, but I okay. mean one more in this in this cycle. All right, um, I'll go ahead and say the Maze Runner, the Scorch Trials. Oh, how did it come out? How long did the jury deliberate? Fucking hung jury. Can you believe it? <laughs> Two and a half hours, and Scorch is just sitting there sweating. Sure. You know, uncomfortable in a suit. He yeah. doesn't wear suits. Can't get the fan to work. Turns out it was the same switch as the lights. <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, and it's just, it's so, it's, okay, so Breaker Morant is like a courtroom drama. Okay. Um, the Scorch Trials is, like blows it away <laughs> as far as like, it's like the verdict. It's like uh-huh. 12 angry men because you don't expect to go into the jury room, but you do. And a, probably a solid 45 minutes is spent uh-huh. in there with those characters as they try to, you know, they're like this scorch kid yeah. and you can't trust him. You know, right. I don't believe him. You can't trust that kind see. And that's, there's sure. a direct uh, homage to 12 angry men. There. Sure. So, but it's really, but it's, so it's frustrating. I did spoil it when I said it was a hung jury. I feel bad about that. But you know what? It's about the journey. It's not about the destination. I highly recommend the movie. I thought it was better than the first film because I feel like they've expanded the universe. You understand now how the laws work, how the okay. legal system Are you going to talk about the actual nope. story? Okay. But you do. I do think it's a very, very great movie and one of the best courtroom dramas we've ever seen. Okay. You can find your review on com. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in case you don't believe us. <laughs> I feel like um, I got to write an alternate review now. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, next up for me. Oh, this will be quick. Uh, cause I saw a very bad, uh, very like self-consciously cute French movie called Paulette, which is about, uh, a racist, uh, cranky old lady 
who uh, decides to start selling weed. <laughs> yeah. So the the story is like she had a um, uh, she and her husband owned a bakery for years. It went out of business. He died. She's broke now, living in like public housing, uh, and uh, she's getting her like possessions repossessed i guess and uh she sees how much the kids in the public housing unit are making selling weed so she's like hey i want to try some of that and at first she just tries literally just selling hash or whatever weed on the corner uh and then she uh her her grandson accidentally knocks some hash into her cake batter and she was like oh i'm onto something here it's it's dreadful uh and it's like the kind of it's one of those like it's a French movie, but it's one of those Hollywood type like superficially like cute and warm hearted movies yeah. that's deeply cynical yeah. underneath. Like uh, it doesn't take any of its characters or their situations seriously. It's all just a means to uh, have cute little jokes. Uh, but these are people, you know, at the low end of the economic rung, you know, and yeah. like people who, whose lives are being ruined by drugs or who are, you know, facing, uh, uh, you know, death every day because of their, uh, their line of work. And, uh, it's, it doesn't take any of this seriously. It's yeah. all, uh, it's all very cutesy and I really hated it. <laughs> it's called Paulette. Don't go check it out. You know what you should check out instead is a film people that people haven't seen that you and I saw in the theater called Saving Grace. You oh. Remember that one? Yeah, we did with see Craig that. Ferguson and Brenda Blethyn. Brenda Blethyn. And you and I both thought it was uh, it's similar, but yeah. uh, I remember you and I both really liking it at the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a sucker for those like uh, like waking Brit- the divine kind of things. Yeah, uh, Calendar Girls. Yeah, like uh, uh, well, I guess Waking the Divine is Irish, but like the the British like village comes together yeah. uh for some unexpected hijinks <laughs> uh, I, I, I really like this one yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, the englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain i love that movie yeah, i like that i haven't seen it in a long time but uh, i haven't seen I the full know. monty in a long time yeah, yeah like it was nominated for best picture in 1997 and i remember watching it uh with i saw it with my parents around that time and i remember I, I was not really familiar with that subgenre yet. Uh, and so I thought it was like really delightful and fun. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I were to revisit it now, would I just be like, Oh yeah, it's just another one of these. Yeah. You know, but I that's like one of my favorite things about hot fuzz is that, yes, I know hot fuzz is an action movie like parody, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of a parody of these movies too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the British village movie. Absolutely. Uh, anyway. Uh, okay. So wait, Paulette sucked. You're up. Okay. So next for me is a film directed by, I do not, I did not write his name down, but it's called Experimenter. Okay. The uh, story of Stanley Milgram, who came up with, well, the Milgram experiments, um, which it's hard to explain, but I, once I start describing it, people will know what I'm talking about, okay. where uh, he has two guys come in. One guy is the teacher. The other is the learner. The learner sits in a room and agrees to have uh, electric shocks administered anytime he gets an answer wrong. And the learner, uh, sorry, the teacher is in another room and he's the one who has to administer the shocks and then slowly but surely administer a higher voltage. Uh, even though the, the learner is, uh, starting to yell and Mm -hmm. say, Hey, get me out of here. This is awful. I didn't agree to this, that kind of thing. Uh, the learner is a plant. The experiment is, is purely on the teacher right. and to see 
how much longer they'll keep hurting this person, uh, even though they're not being forced to. You know, it's purely voluntary. They can leave at any time. Um, so that's the that's the that's the famous Milgram experiment. There were several others. I think the concept of seven degree, uh, six degrees of separation starts with him because of an experiment he did there. Okay. It's really interesting. Uh, it's, you know, I guess it's kind of a biopic. It doesn't really delve so much into, uh, into his life or why he does what he does, except they reveal early on that his family, is Jewish and got out of Germany at just the right time. And my guess is when, and my guess is when you get out of a situation like that, you're like, okay, so how is this, how is this possible? Uh, let's explore it. And so Peter Sarsgaard plays Milgram and does, I think a great job. I'm Sarsgaard. So I'm, he's in three of the movies I'm talking about right now. Uh, he's in the next one too. Uh, and he's such a great dependable actor who just, he has instincts that you wouldn't immediately assume. And I just, I, I really like the way he plays things, but also the director shoots the film in very, very unusual ways where Stanley and his uh, wife played by Winona Ryder. Always nice to see her. Um, they're driving in a car and, but it is obviously on a soundstage. It is obviously rear screen projection. And then they will arrive at their destination, which is like a dinner party. Uh, and it's clear they are on a soundstage and there's, and the background of this living room is also being projected onto a screen behind. Wow. So it basically, it's just like, it's a film. And at one point, Milgram is will turn to the camera and tell you, which by the way does a great job of making you complicit uh, complicit in all of his experiments, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. Um, but there's a, there are a couple of scenes where he's walking down the hall talking to you, and then an elephant is walking behind him, like a whole elephant, like a, and it's in the same physical space. I love this. It's kind of great. So it's directed it by uh, Michael Almereda. Yes, he's made a lot of stuff. Yes, and I looked him up. And he had done some stuff that I think I had uh, seen or found interesting. I don't remember exactly. I think his big, the thing I think he's most known for is, which I never saw is the 2000 adaptation of Hamlet with the Ethan Hawke. Oh yes. Okay. Um, which, Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I can, uh, <laughs> I can see it actually. <laughs> okay. It's hard to explain, I, I, but it's, it's a film that embraces certain aspects of artificiality, like that, that rear screen projection and this idea of, Oh, you're watching a movie. You're not watching a real thing. That's how Stanley Milgram deals with things. Like mm-hmm. he will have what appears to be reality, but he's just trying to get an emotional reaction out of you. Like I am doing with you, the audience. It's such a fascinating way to make a movie about this subject. And this is what I'm talking about. When I look at Pawn Sacrifice and then I, the next film I'm going to be talking about is Black Mass. When I, when I look at these conventional biopics, and then I look at something like love and mercy. I look at something like experimenter and I just think like you can like, there's such thing as getting to like an emotional and philosophical truth underneath all of this. You don't need to just show the events of this person's life. They still do, but it's so much more interesting. Uh, you know, they show again, this gets the artificiality in the seventies. Uh, they made a movie in there's a TV movie inspired by Stanley, uh, Stanley Milgram and his experiments. Uh, and the 
experimenter is played by William Shatner. And so he's on set and he's talking with the, he's talking with Shatner and he's talking with, uh, uh, a young Ossie Davis and, and just is marveling at just how wrong this film is getting it. But of course he's also, we're also aware that we're watching a film that is often making no attempt to convey reality. There's so much going on with the film. It's such a fascinating film. That sounds, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. That sounds I, very I, intriguing. I don't know what the situation is as far as uh, distribution or anything like that. Um, it's a film I hadn't really heard about until we got the, uh, we got the, the, the screening invite, but when you get the chance to see it, uh, do see it. It's, it's, it's intriguing. All right. And then you already said what your next one is. It's black mass. It is black mass directed by Scott Cooper. Um, I watched, I, I, I was interested in it because I read the book, uh, years ago, but, and the book was written and I read it before Whitey Bulger was caught. Um, and so, uh, I will say if you want to hear a much more in-depth discussion, I was on a film, I was on a podcast called real world theology. Um, talking about the film, uh, at length. So that I don't think that's available yet, but it will be in a few days. Um, it's a fine, sh- it's a fine movie. It's the performances are really, really good. Um, but I think they got some things wrong as far as perspective. This should not have been from the perspective of Whitey Bulger. We've seen that movie before. We've seen gangster movies before. Mm-hmm. It should have been from the perspective of John Connolly, the FBI guy. FBI guy. So I'm thinking in terms of Die Hard. Yeah. We're going to need <laughs> uh, some new FBI yeah. guy. Uh, the FBI agent who was uh, Whitey Bulger's handler and was as corrupt as can be, but did so in the spirit, in the name of getting the mafia, the Italian mafia, out of South Boston, but also... F- feeling a certain degree of loyalty to his friends in South Boston who he would never dream of arresting and in doing so allowed monstrous things to happen to me. That's the more interesting story. And Joel Edgerton does a really great job of playing that character, but the screen time is split between him and Whitey Bulger. In fact, I would say the film probably views John Connolly as a supporting character. And I feel like that's the problem because now you're just making another gangster movie. And now I'm going to be comparing it to better gangster movies. (laughs) Um, but the performances are good. Johnny Depp is great. Uh, Joel Edgerton is great. Everyone is really solid. Um, and then, somebody who is guaranteed to be in my submissions of, uh, the Bruce McGill award for best supporting performance under 15 minutes is uh, Peter Sarsgaard. Okay. He's in it as a guy who uh, it's such a, it's a great, he's electric when he's on the screen because he's a guy who is, he is himself a murderer. He is a, a horrible drug addict and he finds himself in a, in the position of knowing something he shouldn't know and desperate and being like, okay, well uh, I'm going to get killed for this. So I'm going to go to the FBI and try to be an informant at the very least so that I can get in witness protection and continue to be alive. But he's making the report to Joel Edgerton, right? But there are other people around. So what, what's happening is Joel. So you have these two really good actors playing these things where Peter Sarsgaard is desperately trying to convince everyone in the room that he is telling the truth. Joel Edgerton is desperately trying for his own reasons to, uh, cast doubt. Whereas if he were actually doing his job, 
then, then he would believe this guy a hundred percent. In fact, he does believe this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, but he needs to make sure that nobody else does. It's, there's a lot of layers to that scene. It's the, maybe I think the best scene in the film and Peter Sarsgaard is really great in it. And so it's, it's not a bad movie overall. I just feel like aside from some of the performances and a couple of really solid scenes here and there, um, I feel like it's just not a movie that people are going to be talking about. I think that's a bummer because this story is an interesting story and one that I think deserves to be told in an interesting way instead of just kind of the straightforward generic way that it is. Okay. Uh, speaking of Joel Edgerton. Okay. I saw Baltazar Karmakur's Everest. Oh, all right. That was the 3d movie, uh, from earlier. And it, I would say it's worth the 3d. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, I could see that. It, yeah, it definitely has some nice uh, shots. And did you see uh, 3D IMAX? Um, like the AMC Century okay. City, like what is it? Like fake IMAX, right? Like mini IMAX. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So I saw it in air quotes IMAX, yeah. Fomax, Fomax. Yeah, that's when I saw it in. Um, and uh, I've liked uh, Baltazar Cormacher, uh in the past. Um, he, he made, uh, he made two guns, which is, I think is a really underrated action movie, uh, from 2013, I think. Uh, and I his first film was called, uh, 101 Reykjavik, which is like, couldn't be further from the like sort of, uh, mainstream type of movies he's making now. Mm -hmm. It was like this like indie dark comedy that he made in Iceland. Uh, and so I, I've been a fan of him for 15 years, I guess. Uh, and here, I think he, the movies, it's, it's not overly long. It's a little over two hours, but it's long for him, for this filmmaker. Um, and I think it struggles a little bit with that, especially in the first half. I think it doesn't, it, it doesn't really distinguish the characters. Uh, I should say for people who don't know what it's about, um, it's about the, I guess infamous 1996 uh, storm on Mount Everest that was until very recently the deadliest day in the history of Mount Everest hmm. because I think eight people had died, only five of the people in the movie because three people died in a completely other other side of the mountain, not part of this story. Hmm. Um, but so five people died in the movie. Uh, uh, but re just this past April, there was a day that um, completely obliterated that record because there was an avalanche that killed like 19 people. Oh, wow. Um, but, uh, this was the deadliest day. Uh, but it, the movie doesn't typically take place. So I didn't realize that when you like set out to climb Everest, you're like, it might take, you might like actually getting from base camp to the top of the mountain. That last time might only take a couple of days, but you're devoting months of your life to this. Cause you yeah. like go up to base camp. You make like a bunch of mini, like, climbs up and back to like, uh, acclimatize yourself. And mm. so like it uses all this time of these people. So these people who were strangers when it started, who went, uh, on this, they, they paid $65,000 a piece to a company, um, called adventure consultants, which is run by, uh, a guy who now I'm, uh, Rob, Rob Bell. No, Rob Hall. Rob Bell is a pastor. Yeah, yeah. Rob Hall is probably the answer. Yeah, Rob Hall is maybe what I meant to say. Um, Rob Bell has been diversifying a little bit, but I don't <laughs> think... He's not leading expeditions. Well, yeah. this guy, he's definitely not because this guy dies. Oh. Okay. Um, I guess it's a spoiler, but it's been, you know, it's uh, it's it's true. Um, people, So these people paid $65,000 a person um, and spend 
weeks, you know, they go for um, a May 10th is the day that uh, mm-hmm. that they summit. M- most of the 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 death the, when I say it's the, de- the deadliest day and um, up until that point, uh, that refers to May 11th, 1996, because that's this um, the storm that hit that killed people ha- happened when they were descending. They had already mm-hmm. summited Mount Everest and were coming um, back down toward base camp when they got caught in the storm. Uh, and so these people paid all this money and they spend, you know, it's a May, May 10th is the day they're going to climb. They, they start in like mid April. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so they get to spend all this time together. And in theory, that should be the time that we're, we, as they're getting to know each other, we're getting to know them. Right. But, uh, the filmmaker, the Cormac, like seems unable to really latch onto that. He either ignores them as pers- as people and treats them, you know, mostly, uh, as interchangeable, just like, uh, you know, uh, parts of the, of a whole, or he, the screenplay steers too far into it. And it gets, you get sort of like trite, like faux inspirational type of like, here's why I'm, here's why I want to climb Everest. And that, uh, and that's, it's never bad, but it's like, it does feel like there's a lot of time in the first half where I'm like, uh, I wish I had a sense of, you know, and like the cinematography is like, you're getting these, you know, uh, you're getting the majesty or whatever, but, um, it's like, I wish I had more of an investment and like, I can't, I can't just stop thinking like these people paid $65,000. Like I wish it got me into the mindset of like why it was, would be worth it to those people. As opposed to something like touching the void, which is such a wonderful film right. that gets you into these people's yeah. mindset. Yeah. But that said, once the turn comes, once they're really climbing the mountain in, er- in earnest yeah. and they're dealing and he's just dealing, he doesn't have time for all that stuff. He's dealing with the process of ascent and survival, which is like yeah. a thing. I mean, you can't, uh, like when you're climbing Mount Everest, it's not, you know, you're not on a stroll. It's yeah. <laughs> like, uh, the, the speech at the beginning that I think is in the trailer when he talks about like the human body was not meant to survive up here. Like yeah. once you're above a certain, uh, altitude, your body is dying. That's what it's doing because you're running out of oxygen. And so not only you, like there's a process of, you know, climbing f- higher, not falling off the mountain or into a crevice and also staying oxygenated enough. It's like, you can't, you can't let your guard down for a second when you're on the mountain and that makes for great drama. So the second half of the movie yeah. is really, really fantastic. I think and really strong stuff. And when the storm does hit, it is like, it's tense. Now I'm about to sound probably a little insulting, maybe a bit insensitive. Isn't life hard enough? <laughs> like, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I agree. I, I have no real desire to, climb Mount Everest. Although this movie like weirdly made me think, I think I could do that. Like <laughs> the movie about how like difficult it is and how all these people died. I was like, I think if I had the time and money, I could do, I could do it. Uh, I don't think but- I could do survivor <laughs> and I watch that all the time. And no, the thing that gets like, there are, there are things that I will watch people do like amazing things and I'll think, Oh, and I get angry. It's like, oh, I wish I could, I was the type that could do something like that. When I hear of something like this, I just think I'm good. Um, I'll be right over here doing what I do. And you do that. Uh, I um, probably am not, I can't guarantee you, but I'm probably not in danger of an avalanche here in my office podcasting. Yeah. Um, but a couple of other things I wanted to say real quick. Uh, the, 
so the this climb uh, in this disaster was made famous largely by John Krakauer's book. Mm-hmm. John Krakauer was there, um, and he is the movie is not directly based on his book, but he uh, he is there and he is played by Michael Kelly. Do you know that actor? Yeah, I like uh, him. I like him a lot. Yeah, he's good. Um, Josh Brolin's in it. Um, John Hawks. Um, who else? like it? Jason Clark uh, is he in it? Um, yeah, Jason Clark. Okay. Uh, wait, did I say Joel Edgerton? It's Jason mm-hmm. Clark. Yeah, you said Joel Edgerton. That's so weird that I said Joel Edgerton because it's like it's an they're, Australian guy. They're they're similar actors. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel like, I feel like I'm have to go if back you can't this. if you can't get no, one, you should get talking. the other. Um, oh, I feel stupid now. Yeah, no, it's Jason Clark. It was Jason Clark all along, <laughs> and I feel bad for both Joel Edgerton and Jason Clark that I got them confused. <laughs> um, anyway. It's like a twist. Yeah, uh, Jason Clark all along. And then, yeah, so Emily Watson, Kieran Knightley, uh, Robin Wright is in it. Um, hmm. uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is in it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but a, a couple of things I wanted to mention. One of them I'm already forgetting. But, uh, oh, no, I mentioned Michael Kelly. But uh, to give you an idea of the, like, the way that, like, Cormacher knows, like, once the, once the tensions run high, he doesn't have to embellish. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's terrifying enough and when people do occasionally a couple of people do fall to their deaths at different points um and he doesn't uh, i talked talk about this in my review and i really really like this choice that he doesn't like do the shot of you don't look down and see their bodies falling or yeah. hear them or anything they literally just slide out of the bottom of the frame and yeah. never to be seen again and it's like sickening in a way yeah. uh and that the choice to treat it with that sort of simplicity yeah. um, is a really, really smart one. And so I would say Everest, if you know, 3d IMAX and you've got enough time, enough patience to sit through to, you know, even in the first hour, there's plenty of beautiful cinematography. It's worth it for that second hour. Okay. And Jason Clark is in it. It sounds so stressful. It is. That second half is not really, only can I really not climb Mount Everest. I don't know if I can actually see the movie about people climbing Mount Everest. Um, and then moving on, because you're done with movies, right? Yes. So now I have one more that I'm very excited to tell people about. My review went up today. Um, it is not the kind of movie that normally would I would think of as my kind of movie, because mm-hmm. it's not um, artistically that innovative. But uh, sometimes a documentary about an interesting enough subject is just... Uh, yeah. And this is a doc... Do you know who Lizzie Velazquez, Velazquez is? Uh, I can picture her because I took a look at your review before we started oh, recording. Right. Yes. So she was born with this, um, incredibly rare, uh, to the point where she like, they, she doesn't get a real diagnosis. They don't really understand what it is until during the making of the movie when she's 25 years old, hmm. um, or maybe 26. Uh, but she was an incredibly rare condition where she's unable to gain any weight at all. Wow. Um, so, uh, it, she, she's, uh, you know, like I said, 26, a full grown adult, um, and weighs, I think in the movie, she weighs 58 pounds. Um, and is, so there's, you know, uh, she's also blind in one eye and, uh, she's, she doesn't look like you or me. I'm trying to like, uh, and so as you can probably imagine being a child with that, she was bullied and ostracized, uh, and had, quite a lot of trouble uh and then kind of found her place because she is this is what what makes the documentary so great is that this woman who has this 
thing that has that could have ruined her life is such an exuberant and warm and glowing human being yeah that uh a like you watch for a minute and you are not thinking about her what she looks like you're thinking about that's just lizzie as a person like and i feel like i'm on a first name basis with her yeah um and like i don't even think the filmmaking itself except for a couple choices that i like is that strong it's just like this person is so uh so compelling there's an argument as much as you and i do like when someone makes a unique choice there is an argument to be made for just like the the unique choice is to make this movie <laughs> right yeah, and that's so we're it. just making it um so she did eventually uh in high school you know she became a cheerleader she like sort of found oh, that's uh, great. Uh, it's great and then when she's 17 she's on youtube and she happens to see a video on youtube a 10 second video titled the world's ugliest woman and it's uh. her and there's hundreds and hundreds of comments about like uh how you know, she should have been aborted or she should never leave the house or these awful things. Um, and she was, as you can imagine, devastated, uh, by this. Yeah. It's like, it's hard to, hard to even uh, imagine, um, what that would be like, but she, uh, because she's an inspiration, like, and I don't use that word lightly. I talk about that in my review that like, calling something inspirational is almost like it's become so watered down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she literally is an inspiration. Um, she responded by, uh, starting her own YouTube channel and yeah. then becoming like, uh, a successful flogger, I guess, mm-hmm. and becoming an advocate for, um, anti-bullying measures. Sure. And so in the movie, you see the movie uh, after the, you know, the most of the second half of the movie, um, when it's not it, part of it is about her kind of getting a diagnosis, but really it just sort of follows her as she tours the country. She ended up doing a Ted talk on the strength of her yeah. YouTube videos. She ended up doing a Ted talk, which rocketed her to a lot of, uh, exposure and she tours the country and even Mexico, um, because her family is Mexican American, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, giving these speeches she meets hillary clinton she ends up going to uh washington dc to lobby for a bill called the safe schools improvement act or something Mm -hmm. that's uh um the movie kind of fumbles actually getting across what she's trying to uh, accomplish it's just so we know it's anti-bullying like kids are bullied and a lot of people you know a lot of older people who didn't grow up with the internet don't really understand what being bullied in the modern age yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, and that's a part of her, her fight. Um, and, uh, the thing I, I wanted to tell you about, cause I always, th- I always think of you in a movie when I'm watching, if, whether it's fiction or documentary. And, uh, there's a Christian who is, uh, like, no, I mean this in a good way, oh, like okay. <laughs> not the way that it's like, cause either Christians in most movies are, um, well, we talked about them being suspect often, yeah. uh, but there's also the kind of where it's like the Christian, even when they're good, it's like the Christianity and their piety is all that defines them as a, and yeah. so it becomes it's the town from footloose, <laughs> right? It becomes, but even when it's not negative, like there's a lot of Christians who are defined by what they say as opposed to what they do. Sure. Sure. Um, her, uh, you know, I'm not a uh, Christian myself, but, uh, her father, wait, wait, wait. yeah, what, <laughs> um, her father is, what he is what Christians should be like. Mm-hmm. 
because, and this, you know, like I said, I'm not a Christian myself, but there are certain things um, that I really uh, do agree with in terms of that philosophy. And it's part of the reason, I mean, I couldn't pick a more different movie to compare this to, but um, uh, Calvary from last year is a movie that explores like what it means to accept the idea of forgiveness you know yeah. and um and and acceptance like as a really hard thing and in and that's part of why i relate to calvary so much because i really do believe that we should we should forgive people uh matter you know how it's easy to to hold grudges even when someone does an awful awful thing we should want to forgive them and uh it's one of the reasons that i respect gran torino so much because so many people went in expecting a pretty standard Uh clint eastwood thing of sweet vengeance yeah and what you get is sacrifice which ultimately is what forgiveness boils down to is you are sacrificing your own sense of satisfaction at getting what you right you know right yeah yeah what you're entitled to yeah um and so when this when she was 17 and she saw this video her father's like very early piece of advice to her was forgive these people. And so you see that like embodied in her. And like one of the things near the end of the movie is when she's, when she's in Mexico city about to speak to an auditorium of 10,000 people Mm -hmm. and she's getting ready in the mirror and doing her hair. Um, she checks her phone and sees a tweet from someone telling her to go kill herself because she still gets these sort of things. And she like, Oh, shows she reacts almost with sympathy. And then, goes out on the stage to talk to 10,000 fucking people. Yeah. And it's like, I, when I talk about it in inspiration, like that's what I mean. She's, uh, I want every, it's, uh, I still haven't said the name of the movie. I'm just realizing. Yeah. yeah uh, I was wondering like, Hey, wait a second. Yeah. It's called a brave heart. Okay. The Lizzie Velasquez story. It's only about 80 minutes long. Um, and it is, do you know what kind of distribution it's getting? Like, well, I know it's playing in some theaters here in Los Angeles this starting this weekend. Um, I want to see I, it. I'm I hoping it will it get so a, uh, um, uh, a wider, um, release or a, a, a video on demand type of release yeah. because it's, uh, I'm, I immediately went and followed her on Twitter. <laughs> like, oh, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm Absolutely. a, I'm a huge Lizzie Velasquez fan now. It's, that sounds marvelous. That sounds really great. And I, I also feel like I would, like, I am having a hard time, like holding back my tears now when I hear about some of that horrible shit that people are capable of. Yeah. And that they just do it without, like, they don't even think about it. It's just astounding to me. Uh, that film, I think I would be wrecked at the end of that film, but it, you yeah. know, in oh, a I good way, yeah. in a good way. Yeah. I definitely, uh, went to bed with tears in my eyes last night, yeah. but in, yeah, in a good way. Um, Okay, let's move on to television, right? Okay. Uh, I only have a couple things to talk about. Um, what, one of them is that I finally uh, finally finished uh, Mr. Robot. Oh, okay. And uh, it will um, definitely, uh, almost definitely be in my top ten shows of the year. Oh, okay. I think. Is it, that a thing you do? It's a thing that I am planning on doing uh-huh. this December. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's something that Sean and I used to do when, when I did previously on, um, but we would do it based on the season. So we would do like September of one year through August of the next year. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to do in December best of the year at this point because okay. seasons, they still mean things to the networks in a yeah. way, you know, uh, and that's fun. Actually. I like that this is, you know, in addition to this being fall movie season, it is fall TV season. Yeah. And like I said, I've seen a lot of, 
uh, watched a lot of these shows in preparation to talk about and go listen to me talk about on the televerse. And I do want to say like, watch the grinder. I'm really, really pleasantly <laughs> surpri- surprised with how funny that was. And there are a couple of jokes I want to tell you about off there. Okay. Um, cause I know you'll like them. Um, but, um, what was I going to say? Oh, Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really good. And I've talked before, um, in one of the things that I've been saying in recent years, uh, about television is that as good as television has been in the, you know, uh, post Sopranos, you know, permanent golden age that we're, that we're in now, um, as good as it's been, there has not been as much formal inventiveness as you can get in movies and even in like commercials it does seem like television is really locked into being a character and story delivery system and it can do that really well but it doesn't push boundaries all that much um and uh you know there are certain shows that definitely uh, challenge that I think Louis has and children's hospital have, and weirdly is like a lot of comedies that were pushing, like mm-hmm. allowed to push that more. But we see with Hannibal and now with Mr. Robot, um, you see the, the, the form of television, uh, being more malleable and, uh, like Mr. Robot would do things where, you know, there's a corporation who are sort of the villains of the movie, or at least on the one, because the, not the movie, the TV show, the show works has t- is telling stories on different levels. And so there is one level, the sort of superficial level where this corporation is the villain. Mm-hmm. And, um, because so much of it is about the care, you know, so much of what the character, the main character, not Mr. Robot, he's not the main character. Right. Um, or is he, that's part of the question. Watch out. Um, part of what the character rails against is the corporate corporate control and the way in the way that people are, are numbed, um, by the consumerism and all that stuff you've heard before. Right. Uh, the, and the show knows that like it agrees with that, but also knows how, um, uh, familiar all those arguments are. Yeah. Um, and, and plays with that. But the show would do things like there would be, the transition from the end of an act into the, into a commercial would be, they would intentionally leave like no, like uh ring out or, or black space. It would just like essentially cut from the show to a commercial like that. Yeah. And I know that I could tell like they're doing it on purpose um, to blur those lines. And then there will be commercials for E Corp okay. in the commercial block Oh, that's during great. the show. And so like, it, it really has fun, uh, blurring those lines and also, um, which is challenge. It's challenging the audience in that way. And the show also literally challenges the audience because it sets us up as Elliot's imaginary friend, I guess, but then, um, points the finger at us for, um, you know, being able to skip the boring parts or knowing more than the main character does and yeah. knowing that he might be in trouble and not in not only not doing anything about it because we can't, yeah. but, uh, enjoying that in mm. a way. Um, it, it like oh, funny gamesy there, uh, but yeah, yes, exactly. But it, I mean, it's not as finger pointing as that or as scolding as that, but, uh, it, um, it, it, it really, it really breaks down, uh, walls in a lot of ways, but, what I really like about it is that underneath all that, it's a show that is, um, I would say, uh, liberal in its politics, 
but only up to the point that that's overtaken by cynicism. Oh, okay. Because uh, cynicism about politics or, or maybe just pe- pessimism, uh, you know, it, the, uh, the movie or the show often demonstrates because the, this F society is the hacker group that's trying to like, you know, take on this corporation and it, the the show is always careful to show how anything big they do that hurts the corporation. Mm-hmm. There are also innocent people who are casualties right. of that, you know, right. like, uh, you know, one guy, you know, a guy who runs a company who is a, you know, a uh, vendor for E Corp or whatever. This guy's essentially out of a job and his like, you know, his life is completely overturned yeah. um, because of something they did, for e, you know did toward e corp and that sort of thing there's a lot of collateral damage on the show and so it never lets you celebrate even when it lets the characters celebrate their victories yeah. uh, it never lets you celebrate but it's not a purely cynical show because it still uh, is very compassionate toward individuals yeah um and it becomes less about elliot's uh fight against corporate overlords and more about his fight uh, with his own sanity and it is very compassionate to what this guy uh is is going through um and uh i i I, you know i don't want to say too much about you know because there are um there are i guess i don't want to say twists so much as there are like reveals or layers pulled back Mm -hmm. um and often when you watch the show there are often times where you you can call what's going to happen before it's going to happen yeah and the show knows that and that like again like i said your knowledge as a as a participant in a way um becomes a part of the story in a way the fact that you knew uh you get sort of accused of like how could you let me talk to this you know person who is not who they say they are or whatever when you knew that it's so it's uh it's a really fascinating That's show great that sounds um, really great it's, yeah do you yeah. know if it's available on hulu or anything um I, I don't think it's on Hulu. you can you can buy it on amazon uh, i think it's like 25 bucks for the season in not HD. doing that um but uh and but it will get a um it already has a, a second season that's great and it also had oh i always forget the actor's name did you watch rubicon no okay now I have to look up this actor's name. What's the TV thing you want to talk about? Because it's going to take me a second. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I will say that I, I watched, uh, as a function of being uh, a guest host on Hey, Watch This with Paul, um, I watched the first episode of Hand of God, which was awful. And then I watched uh, I watched the first episode of season three of The Awesomes and then went back and watched the first two seasons of oh. it. Oh. It's not very good. Oh, okay. Um, that's a... It's it's a, a really good argument for like oh okay that's if ever I need to give people an example of like oh a show that I watch while I'm working, the Awesomes fits in perfectly because it's not t- it's not terrible enough that I can't watch it, but it's also not good enough that I need to pay full attention to it. Um, so I watched that and then uh, against my better judgment, I watched the season premiere of Gotham <laughs> uh, because the AV Club gave it I think a B maybe even a B plus. I don't remember. I think it was just a straight B and I thought, okay, well that's one of the better grades. Let's give it a, let's give it a look. So I watched it and it wasn't awful. Um, but what the fuck (laughs) are they doing to my precious Riddler? (laughs) Are you shitting me? They've now given him 
split personality disorder, which is not him. Yeah, that's a different guy. That's a different guy. A guy who's like, that's his whole deal. But you've get like, if you're going to make the Riddler crazy and he is crazy, you need to make him obsessive compulsive. You need to make him wanting to do things that he doesn't actually like having to do things that he doesn't want to do. And then it works at it. And then it, you work towards the riddle thing. That's fine. But like, just like it, it astounds me how wrong they have gotten this character. Like it's, and it, and it's, it only happened in the season finale and then the season premiere up until then. It's just like, I can see this guy being the character that, mm-hmm. that we know. And I'm not even saying like stick to like, I'm fine with, with, with having variations on the character. They already did as far as his origin story. But part of me feels like, yeah, but now you're screwing with him in that you're now making him two face and you've already introduced Harvey Dent. So what are you going to like now? What are you going to do with him? Have him do a lot of crosswords and be like, you know what? It, it just, it, it makes, it, it makes no sense. And it just, it's, they've, the, the, the premiere, the season premiere isn't, it's not terrible. There, there are other characters that they're getting a better handle on, but it astounds me just how much they are getting wrong with the Riddler, which leads me to believe, which, um, so Paul Dini, when and Bruce Tim, when they did uh, Batman the Animated Series, mm-hmm. the Riddler only shows up in I believe three episodes, because, mm-hmm. and their reason for it, he's too smart to write. Like, okay, to have a character because what in the same for the same way uh, same reason that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle did not have Moriarty that much, because if you have a character that gets that that beats Sherlock Holmes so often, then it depowers Sherlock Holmes. But then also if you have Sherlock Holmes go against Moriarty and beat Moriarty, then suddenly Moriarty's not the threat. Right. And in that same way, like if you had like Riddler is supposed to be super smart and if you have him constantly tricking Batman, then suddenly he becomes Batman's greatest villain. But if you have Batman beat him all the time, then it's like, well, how this guy isn't really that smart. Right. So, and just like, and they're like, it took too much time coming up with the riddles, coming up with his schemes. It's just like, he's too, he's too smart to write. And in that, and, and like, I think the Batman, the animated series universe is maybe the best depiction of Batman and his rogues gallery as I've ever seen. And if those people are like, they're in tune enough with the character to know that we, we can't even touch him right. that much. And so, <laughs> Bruno so Heller, these Gotham people think yeah, they are. Yeah. These, these bunch of morons who can barely put two words together. Uh, and it's all art direction and good performances. Like it's just, it's astounding to me. Uh, and it's, and obviously like I lock into that because I like the character, but I feel like they're doing penguin pretty well. They're doing some of these other characters pretty well. Eventually they'll get to two face and completely ruin him. Um, cause that's what people do, uh, with two face. Um, and it's just, uh, and then they've already introduced like a, a possible Joker character. And it's just like, and his performance is way too similar to, uh, uh, Heath Ledger. And it's just, man. And I'm probably just going to keep on watching it while I work. Um, <laughs> because I think this might be the first thing that I like hate watch. Oh, okay. Because, but it's, I guess it's not even that it's more just curiosity. It's like how how far 
can you drop? Like how <laughs> low can you actually go? I'm intrigued. But uh, yeah, so I watched that. And then uh, the last thing I watched the season premiere of Survivor. But you can find out more right. about that yes. on my t- on my podcast, Worth Playing For, which now also has a Twitter account. Okay. Um, and I will say, oh, the actor I was trying to think of, do you know who the character actor Michael Christopher is? Because I'm obsessed with him. Uh, now, he was on Rubicon where he played a character whose name I will never forget. I'm bad with character names, okay. but I could never forget this guy's name okay. because it is Truxton Spangler. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's playing, he plays actually a very similar role uh, on Mr. Robot um, to Truxton Spangler. But uh, he's fantastic uh, on Mr. Robot. And I also wanted to point out that um, in two of the last three episodes of Mr. Robot, uh, B.D. Wong appears right. in a role that it seems like they're setting up to be a bigger role in season two. Nice. So that's exciting because everyone likes B.D. Wong. I like that people are, are utilizing B.D. Wong. Like he's in the movie Focus uh, with Will Smith. And he's okay. in like one scene, but he's great in it. I think that he did a pretty good job in Jurassic World. Okay. Um, and I will say, uh, because I know that you're a big fan of W. Earl Brown, uh-huh. uh, he plays a really, really good part in, uh, in Black Mass. Okay. So, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that the great British baking show is back on PBS and I, I love watching that show so much. Uh, there's, you know, I'm, I'm a, we talked about this, uh, Kate and I on the televerse. Like I, when it comes to reality competition shows, I'm selective. Mm-hmm. I like food ones for some reason, but when they're done right, I can, I just gobble them up they're, They yeah. can be so good. And, uh, the great British baking show, that's, that's how you do it. It's fantastic. So, uh, plus, you know, they're, uh, you know, they have great accents. I have a hard time watching any cooking show because invariably I'm just like, not only can it's like, it looks great. I can neither smell nor taste it. This is very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to have an Atkins bar. Like it's right. somehow it's just not as uh, not as exciting. 